Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Well, welcome back to another episode of KYH2O. And today we're going to talk a little more about a local gem that we have in the Bluegrass region, and that is Flora Cliff Nature Preserve. Yeah, so Flora Cliff is located about equal distance between Lexington, Kentucky and Richmond, Kentucky, if you're traveling along um, Interstate 75. And it is a private nature sanctuary, um, but it's also a gem. It's right along the Palisades. So um, you met with Beverly James, who is the preserve manager there at Flora Cliff. So let's listen to Beverly describe Flora Cliff and a little bit about what the lay of the land is like. So Flora Cliff, we are mostly forested and being in the Kentucky River Palisades area, there is a lot of steep topography around here. Um, so that has basically um, protected um, a lot of land in the Kentucky River Palisades because it's not easily farmed, it's not easily developed. So in central Kentucky, this is one of um, the best areas to, for people to experience nature and to go hiking, um, to do some bird watching, to do a variety of different activities. Um, and so at Flora Cliff, with, within that sort of, um, sort of context of the Palisades and the steep topography, you have different aspects uh, along the ravines. Um, are in, there are a number of different tributaries along the Palisades. So our main tributary is Elk Lake Creek. Um, you can have an east-facing ravine and a west-facing ravine. You have uplands, you have floodplains, um, you have seeps and springs, and all of that sort of influences the uh, vegetation um, and the animal communities that are out here. So, uh, you know, most of it's going to be forested, but we have rock outcrops, we have old fields, uh, but we have over 600 species of plants that have been identified out here, uh, with about 80% of those being native plants. And so, um, because this area hasn't been you know, impacted by urbanization and agriculture like the rest of um, central Kentucky or much of central Kentucky has been, um, you get some of that original vegetation. And so we actually have some of the oldest known trees in the state that are um, 10 chickapin oaks that date to the 1600s, one of those being a 408-year-old tree uh, that was um, sort of discovered about 10 years ago through a tree pouring project. Wow, she just mentioned that they have a tree that is 408 years old. Is that right? Did we hear that correctly? It is, and she actually took us out to see it because I wanted to know what does a 400-plus-year-old tree look like. Yeah, was it enormous? It was definitely bigger than all the other trees surrounding it. Um, it was not like, you know, the big redwoods that you think about or anything like that. Um, but it was, a, it was a beautiful tree, and it was amazing to me that something that old, something that had been around here before the Revolutionary War, is in our backyard. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, the, the other thing that I think a lot of our nature preserves here in Kentucky do battle with, though, are unfortunately not just the, the trees they like and the, the prized old trees, but also some plants that are non-native. Um, so let's listen to Beverly describe um, some of the threats that they have on the landscape um, related to vegetation. So a lot of um, non-native plants are either brought in intentionally for ornamental purposes or accidentally through you know trade and, and different types of things. And so uh, in the last um, 
I would say with the last 100 years, you know, we, we start to see these um, non-native plants show up in our natural areas, and then it's just been sort of an exponential increase in, you know, I would say in the last uh, 30 years, where a lot of them have really exploded in this area. So particularly uh, for us, it's been amber honeysuckle, it's garlic mustard, it's winter creeper. We're starting to see calorie pear come in. Um, and because we have a lot of, um, you know, kind of landscape fragmentation, those are in roads and things like that, those are all avenues for invasive plants to come in. And so at Flora Cliff, you know, our focus areas are uh, protecting, restoring, and sharing nature. And so in addition to uh, protecting the land um, that Mary Wharton established, um, we also do a lot of uh, restoration work with the invasive species stuff. Um, and so we have volunteer days every Wednesday uh, with you know, groups that come out and help us cut honeysuckle, help us pull garlic mustard so that we can restore those native plant communities. Amanda, Beverly spends a lot of time at Flora Cliff uh, with volunteers removing invasives. And so a lot of times we think about removing invasives more for the plants, other plant species themselves, right? To give them a chance to compete. But removing invasives also has some water quality benefits, doesn't it? It does. Um, so one thing that I think about when I see honeysuckle is that it looks like there's a lot of vegetation, but underneath the canopy, it's bare soil. So it blocks out the sunlight and no ground cover can really live underneath honeysuckle. So there actually is bare, bare soil. So that can create an erosion issue with sediment going into the water. But um, I've, I found an article the other day that um, talks that some researchers at U of L um, conducted a study in Beargrass Creek. So this is Jefferson County, so in Louisville, um, and they looked at um, diversity and abundance of macroinvertebrates. So our our little you know aquatic insects that we've talked about before on our podcast. And so what they saw, they were comparing areas of Beargrass Creek that had invasives like honeysuckle and then area two areas that had been restored where the honeysuckle had been removed and so they did a litter bag study so for our listeners that essentially is what it sounds like you take some um, leaf litter from uh, then they used honeysuckle and also maple trees sugar maple trees and so they put those in a little mesh bag and they submerged those in the water, they let in, a, in the creek, they let those decompose, and then they were looking at the abundance of macroinvertebrates. And so they found that where the honeysuckle litter was, there was um, a lower abundance of macroinvertebrates because the honeysuckle litter decomposed really quickly. So what, what they found is that when you have a honeysuckle-dominated stream area, that it could leave our aquatic insects without a food source for part of the year. And so that's really a detriment to our macroinvertebrate communities. So it's just an interesting um, connection in a way that besides just plant competition that these invasives um, are interacting on the landscape, they're also having a water quality impact. So Carmen, also one of the things that I think is interesting, we, we've mentioned the old trees that are out at Floor Cliff, but there um, is actually a researcher from Harvard, is that right, who has, who has been to Flora Cliff and has done some really in-depth study of the trees. So tell us about that. That was interesting. So Beverly was talking about a Dr. Neil Peterson, who is a senior ecologist at Harvard Forest. And I'm not sure why he chose to come down to Flora Cliff. Um, 
maybe there was a connection with the, the, the um, professor who founded Floorcliff, but she was talking about how he is a dendrochronologist, so somebody who studies aging trees or the time cycle of trees. And it was really interesting to listen to Beverly talk about the characteristics he would look for in the forest for those type of trees, you know, looking for the shape of the trees or the thickness it would develop. And I found myself when we first started that hike, I wasn't paying much attention to anything like that at all. But once she subscribed it, then the rest of the hike as we were going through, I found myself looking out amongst the trees and trying to see, could I spot those trees that might be the 400 plus year old trees? So that started with uh, Dr. Neil Peterson about 10 years ago, and he's a dendrochronologist, and there are various um, characteristics of old trees that he looks for, um, and size is not one of them. And so he looks for what the tree um, canopy looks like, and you know, so it's not going to be a huge canopy, but it will have some large, a few large branches, um, and the, the bark is going to look quite a bit different on our old trees. They're, they're going to do some balding. Um, and you know, not be quite as like thick and textured as our younger trees. Um, you can also look at sort of the shape of the trunk. Uh, so as trees uh, grow up um, and mature in size, once they reach their um, sort of maximum height, they put on more growth at the top. So uh, our younger trees are going to be more, much skinnier at the top of their trunk than the, than the bottom. So um, there are a number of different things that, that the trained eye can kind of look for to um, see these older trees in the forest. I also thought it's really interesting too at Floorcliff, even though we might think, well, that area, the land, after she describes the landscape and, and we've heard on a previous podcast about the Palisades and Floorcliff is located kind of nestled in there in the Palisades, I, I would think that a lot of that area would be forested. But um, let's listen to Beverly talk about um, the other areas of the land that are part of Floorcliff. So I would say only about like five to 10% of Florida Cliff is, um, you know, old fields and open areas. And uh, we have, you know, one old field on one side of our preserve that has, you know, a lot of milkweed and bee balm um, and goldenrod naturally, which is, you know, great for pollinators. But there was this field by our nature center um, that hasn't had a lot of that. And so we have uh, worked with U.S. Fish and Wildlife to do um, sort of a restoration field conversion project um, and it's been two years now, but it was seeded last year with a variety of uh, wildflowers uh, that will benefit pollinators. And um, these would be things that would have more of a kind of a continuous um, bloom cycle throughout the growing season and also provide um, host plants for you know, a lot of our butterflies and moths. Well, listening to you and Beverly talk about Floorcliff, I think a lot of our listeners are gonna be interested in visiting Floorcliff and there are opportunities, even though it is a private preserve um, and not open daily to the general public, there are some opportunities for our listeners to, to visit, to volunteer. Um, so let's listen to Beverly describe those and hopefully this will um, entice our listeners to get involved at Floorcliff. We do programming on a variety of natural history topics, and so it just depends on the time of year. In the spring, we're going to be covering um, our wildflowers. Uh, the Palisades region, and especially Flora Cliff, is uh, really just a, um, a wonderful place to go to experience our, our spring wildflower diversity um, before the trees um, fully leaf out. The forest understory, you know, is able to get some light in early spring after the temperatures start to warm up. And you've got bloodroot and twin leaf and phlox and shooting star and poppies and 
Uh, it's just a really sort of amazing display. So we feature that more in the spring, and then once we get into May, uh, it's a good time for birds and herpetology. Uh, and then it, once we get into the summer, then we kind of focus more on uh, creek walks and insects uh, and the butterflies. And then we get into the fall and we kind of highlight ecology uh, and forest and trees and um, sometimes geology. Uh, so we just try to cover a variety of different things. And then we're not just covering natural history, but we also want people to come out here and just to be like inspired by nature. So sometimes we do uh, what we call the creative reflections hikes. We've started those this year where we come out and we sit for like an hour and we shut off all of our um, you know, devices and you know, no cameras are allowed. You just have like either you can meditate, you can draw, you can write, um, but it's uh, just about sort of being in nature and kind of getting away from um, you know, some of those um, urban influences that impact our, our daily lives. Um, but yeah, we, we do have a variety of different programs. And we have about, since we're all guided hike and it's only for small groups, we have about uh, 1,200 visitors a year and do offer about 70 or so different programs. And there are the programs that we offer that we put on our website that people can sign up for on a first come, first serve basis. Um, but we can also do private tours for small groups. We work quite a bit with UK and other universities to offer tools. So Beverly describes um, the opportunities to visit Floor Cliff. Um, but are there challenges with floor cliff in terms of visitors or is there, um, do they want to rec recruit more visitors or did you get a sense from Beverly what her thought was on that? I did, that's a, that's a great question and you know Beverly gives some specific guidance that the donor had to the, the, the individual who set it up and floor cliff strikes this balance between honoring those wishes of protecting the area and preserving it but also meeting their educational mission. So for them, it's like how many people can come visit the park, or the not necessarily the park, but the, the natural area, and not negatively impact it. And that's a challenge that we are seeing with other parks locally, nationally, is you want visitors to come and appreciate the beauty, learn about nature, get immersed in it, but you don't want to get loved to death. And that's what happens at some parks when you just have so many people come in with regard to causing compaction or erosion or, you know, getting off the trails and various things like that. So I have um, heard a lot about Dr. Mary Wharton. And um, if you're familiar with the Wildflowers of Kentucky book, the, um, the first one I learned wild, Wildflowers out of, I had a green cover as a hardback book, and I think it was published in the 1980s or so, and uh, she was an author of that, as um, along with Roger Barber, who was a, a, um, a biologist that was here at the University of Kentucky as faculty. And the two of them worked together a lot in Central Kentucky and maybe statewide. But um, you know, I hear um, my husband and some of of his friends who are biologists and field biologists, and they talk about Roger Barber and and some of the early. Um, biologists that were really instrumental in describing what we have here in Kentucky. Um, but Beverly does a really nice job of, of talking about Dr. Wharton and her wishes for Flora Cliff. Uh, you know, Flora Cliff was established by um, Dr. Mary Wharton, who was a um, botanist and she was a teacher at Georgetown College. So it took her 30 years to acquire 287 acres and it was her wishes that, you know, designated that Flora Cliff only be open um, you know, for these guided hikes, because uh, she was concerned about the impact that that would have, um, 
that people can have on our natural areas and she wanted people to kind of come out here a little bit more intentionally and uh, learn about nature and get connected to nature um, and also for it to be like a place for you know research and, and education and things like that. So as we're hearing from Beverly it's it's an interesting balance that a preserve manager such as herself is faced with in terms of wanting to encourage um, folks to come and learn more about our landscape and about our biodiversity, um, but also not encouraging too much of it so that we decimate the resource. Um, and she also has some tips for our listeners. Um, you know, as you're out exploring Kentucky's water resources, Kentucky's landscape resources, it's a good thing to keep in mind some basic respect, I guess, um, for our landscape. So let's let Beverly tell us about that. Staying on the trail, um, I know as tempting as it is for people to go off trail, it is important in our natural areas for people to stay on the trails. As I was saying earlier that our hiking boots carry a lot of seeds and so there is impact on uh, you know, dispersing uh, non-native plants to these areas. There's also, um, it's a disturbance to you know, our wildlife, um, you know, whether it's you know, salamanders or snails or whatever, like they will avoid places where um, you know, people and their pets are walking. And so uh, that's why staying on designated uh, trails is gonna be important. Not littering is important. Um, you know, taking, what do they say, you know, take only pictures and uh, leave only footprints. Amanda, one of the interesting things um, about Flora Cliff is, as we've talked about, is some of the, the um, goals for Flora Cliff, but also, you know, as she ta Beverly talked about, some of the restoration opportunities they've been doing with Fish and Wildlife and the invasive species. But for our listeners who want to, say, roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty, Flora Cliff has a wealth of opportunities for volunteers. Our volunteer days are Wednesday mornings for about three to four hours and um, you know if we are working on honeysuckle our volunteers are going to be using hand tools like loppers and hand saws to cut the honeysuckle and then we have a, a number of volunteers that we've been sponsoring to get their pesticide license so that uh, we can get more done out here. Um, and then if it's going to be garlic mustard season, then they're going to be hand pulling and bagging that up. And so there definitely is some physical labor involved with volunteering out here. Um, but we are also, um, you know, working on a volunteer a naturalist program to have people who can help us with our programs um, to uh, lead hikes um, and also to do citizen science out here. So I know, Carmen, from my experience in, in and around central Kentucky, there is more than enough honeysuckle for all of us to go and remove and, and hack and um, work out any frustrations of life we might have on, um, on some poor, unfortunate honeysuckle. Um, so just want to encourage our listeners to um, explore all of our diverse landscapes that we have here in Kentucky, um, and remind our listeners to respect our environment, be good stewards of the land, and take care of our water resources. And thanks again for listening to another episode of KYH2O. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and give us a nice review if you get a chance. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.